Support for this episode of Judaism Unbound comes from the Ashman Family JCC in Palo Alto, California, whose vision is to be the architects of the Jewish future. The Ashman Family JCC empowers you to experience Jewish paths toward a life of joy, purpose, and meaning through innovative Jewish learning and wellness programs, community building, and initiatives to develop the next generation of Jewish leaders. Learn more at www.paloaltojcc.org. This is Judaism Unbound, episode 358. What does spirituality mean? Welcome back, everyone. I'm Dan Liebenson. And I'm Lex Rofberg. And first of all, we want to wish a happy Hanukkah and a Merry Christmas to all who celebrate out there. So hopefully you are having a great holiday season. Hopefully you are not currently stuck in a snow blizzard bomb cyclone situation. I am recording this just a little bit before we release it. So hopefully I am not stuck in a blizzard slash bomb cyclone when we are listening to this. But hopefully everybody out there is safe and having just a wonderful time. We are really excited today to be opening a new series of episodes on Judaism Unbound about spirituality. So many people are interested in the idea of spirituality, whether they are spiritual but not religious or spiritual and religious. And so we wanted to do a broad exploration of this topic of Jewish spirituality. Before we do, just a quick word to remind folks that It is the end of the calendar year, which is a time that a lot of people like to make end-of-year donations to the organizations they really care about. And we hope you'll consider putting Judaism Unbound on that list. If you've been somebody who's really appreciated Judaism Unbound over the past year, but you haven't yet become a donor, we hope that you'll head over to www.judaismunbound.com slash donate and make a donation, large or small. We appreciate it. We have a lot of people out there who listen to this podcast. If everybody would give just a little, we would do quite okay financially as an organization. So please consider doing that at judaismunbound.com slash donate. And now let's launch this series of episodes about Jewish spirituality. We thought we would start with the Institute for Jewish Spirituality, which seems like a good place to start. And so our guest today is Josh Fagelson, who is the president and CEO of the Institute for Jewish Spirituality. The mission of the Institute for Jewish Spirituality is to develop and teach Jewish spiritual practices so that individuals and communities may experience greater awareness, purpose, and interconnection. Since it was founded in 1999, the Institute for Jewish Spirituality has pioneered the development and teaching of Jewish spiritual practices that are grounded in mindfulness, that draw upon the deepest wells of Jewish wisdom, and that enable people to live and lead with clarity, resilience, and a sense of sacred purpose. The Institute for Jewish Spirituality does this through teaching spiritual practices, such as mindfulness meditation, prayer, contemplative Torah study, yoga, and other embodied practices, and working with midot, which are character traits, in order to better align our behaviors with our innermost values. Our guest today, Josh Fagelson, has been leading the Institute for Jewish Spirituality since 2020. He previously was the Hillel rabbi at Northwestern University. That's when I got to know him because I was the Hillel director at the University of Chicago at the time. And while he was the Hillel rabbi, he received a Ph.D. in religious studies from Northwestern. I did not do that. Josh Fagelson also helped found and served as the executive director of Ask Big Questions, an initiative of Hillel International which was the winner of the inaugural Lippmann Kampfer Prize for Applied Jewish Wisdom. And before taking on this role at the Institute for Jewish Spirituality, Josh Fagelson was the Dean of Students at the University of Chicago Divinity School. In addition to his PhD in Religious Studies, Josh Fagelson also has rabbinic ordination from Yeshivat Chovevei Torah. We are also going to be talking about a book that Josh Fagelson recently published, which is called Eternal Questions, Reflections, Conversations, and Jewish Mindfulness Practices for the Weekly Torah Portion. We're really thrilled to start digging into this subject of Jewish spirituality. So, Josh Fagelson, welcome to Judaism Unbound. It's so great to have you. It's great to be here. So I want to start with something that I don't know if we've really discussed. We've been friends for like 15 years. And when you took this job, I don't know if we actually had a conversation, but the conversation that I would have wanted to have is like, Josh, I thought that you were one of my fellow travelers, you know, in the more intellectual realms of Judaism. And here you are now leading meditation sits. So I guess I just want to ask, like, what's up with that? How did that happen? 
What happened to Fagelson? Uh, <laughs> I've I, I gotten that question more than once since I started here. And I remember actually I called, I, I had a conversation with Jay Michelson in my first couple of months. And, uh, and Jay said, yeah, when I first saw the announcement about you for about 10 seconds, I was like, Fagelson. And I was like, oh yeah, that makes total sense. So first of all, I would interrogate the assumption that meditation and mindfulness don't go with intellectual life. They 100% go together. And hopefully, if for you and anybody else, my existence here, you know, help, helps to attest to that, that's great. But I think actually the whole history of IJS, the history of Hasidut, frankly, right? Hasidism of Jewish mysticism. And, and and to me, actually, this is kind of consistent. It's a little bit, it's, it was a little bit stepping over a boundary, but it was a boundary I had been eyeing for a long time. I don't come from a meditation background. I didn't spend, you know, a year going around uh, Southeast Asia to Buddhist monasteries and, and, you know, developing a meditation practice. I have always, however, been in close relationship with people who did. <laughs> and what I've noticed is that throughout my own career, my interest has always been in the Torah that responds to human questions, right? And so my work on Ask Big Questions, I think, was really an outgrowth of that same impulse. Uh, I'm not terribly interested in Torah that is just responding to intra-Jewish questions. You know, why do we blow the shofar a hundred times on Rosh Hashanah and offering some technical answer to that? Okay, but I'm more interested, I've always been more interested in well, what is the experience of listening to the shofar supposed to evoke in me? What am I what is that actually doing for me? And how do human beings wake up as the shofar is one of the things the shofar is meant to do for us? How do we how do we develop awareness and and be awake? Interestingly enough, that's a term that comes up in mindfulness practice, but I think that uh my approach to Torah study has always been pretty aligned with this kind of approach to Torah study and thereby to um, how I live Jewishly uh, and what I and, and, the, and the kind of Judaism that I tried to teach and develop. So why do we blow the shofar a hundred times? <laughs> no, um, okay, so I want to ask about the word spirituality and about the Institute for Jewish Spirituality, because in the intro, we read off some of the mission and some of the description of the Institute. But this word spirituality, I, I really, I mean, this whole series, we're trying to dig into it and understand it. But what are we really talking about? And what are we not talking about? Like when the Institute of Jewish Spirituality is here to transform the way that Judaism is being expressed, lived by people, by rabbis, by organizations, like what is not happening in those worlds that the Institute imagines could be happening? Like I'm really trying to understand what it looks like now and what it looks like if it's transformed. Yeah. So I think often spirituality first and foremost, has been posited in opposition to religion, right? I am spiritual, but not religious. And you can look in lots of scholarly literature about the term spirituality and how it is hard to pin down a definition, but but in a, in a sort of Maimonidean fashion, we can tell you what it's not. Often it is used as a foil to everything that whatever religion, whatever's bad about religion, spirituality isn't that. Um, I think that that does have some utility. There's some value and some work that comes out of that, which is, which lines up with a lot of the history of the Institute for Jewish Spirituality, right, which I'll just briefly recap, um, was founded in 1999 formally, uh, really in response to the phenomenon of uh, Jewish Buddhists or, or Buddhist Jews, Boo Jews. And I think there was a lot of energy in the 1990s, as we know, around a continuity crisis, right? The 1990 National Jewish Population Survey that for the first time showed a majority of American Jewish marriages uh, being interfaith marriages. And I think that part of that also got expressed at looking at, oh my God, there's tens or maybe hundreds of thousands of Jews who over the last two, three decades have left behind a, let's call it a suburban institutionalized Judaism that was not speaking to them, went to insight meditation, Zen, yoga, whatever they were looking for, found something they were looking for and passionate about in various Asian religious traditions. And I think there was a real sense of, wow, what a, what a shame. I mean, like, that's great for them. But like, what a shame that we couldn't find that within our own tradition when we know we have that stuff within our own tradition. And especially in the Hasidic 
tradition for sure, um, but not only there. So that led to the founding of the Institute for Jewish Spirituality and using the word spirituality there, I think, to open up a field of practice that first and foremost, Dan, to go back to your first question, takes it out of just the head and gets the rest of the body involved, the heart, the rest of human experience. There's so much that we have just over-intellectualized and compartmentalized in the head. And to open up a kind of experience of Jewish life that responds to and evokes the whole human experience. So I think that's part of what we mean by spirituality. Where I have settled on, actually, this is not official IJS, this is just Josh, is that spirituality is our capacity to feel at home in the universe. You know, I remember when I watched 30 Rock and, you know, you, you go back and watch old episodes of 30 Rock and Liz Lemon is always talking about like the universe is telling me something. And, you know, you could substitute God, the divine, whatever you want for that. It works just as well. So whatever your theology, I think there is something about a deep feeling of at-homeness in my life, in my body, in my experience uh, as a living being. To me, our capacity for that is our spirituality. Love the shout out to 30 Rock, which of course is built on two important Jewish words. The idea of 30, Shloshim, and Rock is the name of God, Sewer. So we can find holiness and spirituality in 30 Rock, QED, question time. Um, So I want to dwell in what you said about the J. Michelson reaction, the Dan reaction, like this... Wait, Josh, uh, a spiritual institute, spiritual, like, what's the deal? He's intellectual. Like, I, I'm really interested in that. And if I'm being honest, I'm being selfish in my interest there because I am somebody who is ordained through Aleph, through uh, an organization very much connected to IJS and to notions of spirituality, to renewal. People are surprised by that sometimes. They, they, they've known me for a while. I strike them as, to use phrasing that they often use, like, not that woo. And what's funny is I don't experience that. I think they mean it as like a compliment. I think they mean like, you're not like those folks that sort of feel alienating to me that speak slowly and might wear flowy clothes and maybe have long hair. Like you don't strike me that way aesthetically. And so it surprises me that you would be deeply embedded for five and a half years of your life in that world. And look, and I've said this on the podcast, not news to our listeners, like, I'm deeply a pantheist. I believe in the oneness of all creation. When I talk about my, I don't even really want to say theologies, but like when I talk about things I think deeply in my bones, they tend to come off as very wooish. Woo-woo. <laughs> but I'm bringing this up because I think we have a problem in whether it's Aleph and IJS and like, and not just Jewishly, we have a problem in like spiritual communities and spiritually perceived projects where it really is about an aesthetic. If somebody were to small talk with me and, and we're like gossiping about whatever, we shouldn't do that. But if we are, and they said like, ah, that person's really spiritual. I would probably take from that the set of associations I said before. Oh, maybe they've got the flowy clothes. Maybe they enjoy bright colors. Maybe they like weed. And I'm I'm being like, joking about it, but I think it's actually no, very sure. important and it operates in a in a pernicious way in both directions. It, it says to people who are not that aesthetic, like me and, and maybe you based on the people's reactions to you, it says to people like us, this space isn't really for you because you don't quite look the way the rest of this space looks. You're not doing the kinds of things that are perceived as spiritual, even if in your bones you feel like you share interests with these people. And to the people that are in the spiritual circles, there's then like a pressure to adhere to that. Yeah. Look, I think beyond the fact that I would say you've coined a new term, you know, we have boo Jews, there's also woo Jews, uh, clearly. <laughs> <laughs> but there's a phenomenon that I've observed, right, which if you looked back at, you know, 1999, a lot of practices like mindfulness meditation or yoga were viewed culturally as woo-woo. They were fringe. But fast forward 22, 23 years, and, or 24 years, and now you're looking at, I have a 
a side, I don't know, a cottage industry, I feel like, or a little hobby that I practice. Of When I'm, I'm in, you know, the grocery store, I'm at O'Hare, I'm, you know, wherever I am, and I see a magazine cover devoted to mindfulness, or Harvard Business Press has a whole series on like, you know, mindfulness books, like along with like how to negotiate and stuff, right? I take pictures of stuff and just I collect it because it's everywhere, right? It has become so mainstreamed. And in, in within the Buddhist world, uh, there's now the, the backlash against that is calling that Mick mindfulness, of like course. McDonald's, like that. That you got got just to clarify that Mc, for Mc, people. Mick mindfulness, like it's an egg McMuffin from McDonald's, right? And that it's been commodified and just turned into you know one more thing for your uh, wellness regimen. And it still demands us to ask the question: and what's wrong with that? Like, uh, you know, is there really something wrong with that? Let's hold that question for a second. But I think you know, to your point, Lex. One of my favorite theorists is uh, Michael Warner, um, who uh, is one of the fathers of queer theory. And one of the things that he talks about in a book called Public and Private, I believe, is you know what happened to gay subcultures when gay marriage became legalized, right? And it becomes mainstream. Now it's mainstream to be gay. And something that used to be defined in opposition to the normative culture now becomes part of the normative culture. And what do you gain and what do you lose in that essentially. And I think there's something similar in the meditation world, in the spirituality world, um, where what happens when this thing that has been defined and identified with counterculture for so long, uh, in, in the US anyway, for decades, right now is like mainstream. It is worth interrogating. Is there really something wrong with like, if more people are doing mindfulness, if my kids are doing mindfulness at school as part of their curriculum, what is wrong with that? Like, that's great. I'll just say the last thing I'll say is when I was hired, I understood my mandate from our board to to be, we have this beloved artisanal bakery, essentially. This wonderful organization that has been transformative for so many people, right? For 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 hundreds of people, rabbis and cantors and some and, and lay people, but very few people knew about it, right? Outside of the direct impacts that it had had. And so how can we help this artisanal bakery, which struggles to be financially sustainable as an artisanal bakery, how do we help it become like Le Pen Quotidien, a place that still has the same, you know, has a quality recipe that we can feel good about, has a quality ambiance and experience and all of that has the values that we, and that can reach many more people than we could just reach with our artisanal bakery. And I think that's the challenge that we're sort of living through. I'm still kind of hung up on sort of what we're talking about when we're talking about spirituality. And I want to sort of tease some of that out a little, because I, I think that we, when we talk about spirituality, Jewish spirituality, other spirituality, I think we very quickly start thinking about mindfulness and yoga and things of that nature. And I just want to check in with you. Is there more, are there different things beyond that, such that we should be careful to be talking about a whole host of things? and understand them as spirituality. Like I feel when I asked you earlier, so you talked about whether we had a capacity or could grow our capacity to feel at home in the universe. And then we also started talking about mindfulness and meditation. I guess I'm wondering if we could make a little bridge there and say, Great. what does it look like to feel at home in the universe? Because I kind of feel like, I know that people could say that I should get there in terms of the meditation and that kind of stuff. And maybe I will. I mean, I aspire that I will. But I'm wondering, until I do, I want to feel spiritual. What, what would that mean for me? What would that look like for somebody like me to, to take advantage of the possibility of feeling more at home in the universe? That feels like something I would like to do. And I'm wondering, really, is that about ultimately cultivating that capacity to meditate and that sort of thing? Or, or are there other things as well? Thank you. That that's really helpful. And and I would add to that. What are we talking about? Spirituality, and what are we talking about? Jewish spirituality, right? Those are that, that that's right. also important. Mm -hmm. And I would distinguish maybe between spirituality and spiritual practices might be helpful. Um, I, I would stick by that spirituality as a capacity, but I think spirituality, spiritual practices are things that help us develop that capacity. Certainly, you know, things like meditation and embodied practices are tools, they're technologies, they're practices for developing those capacities. And meditation, I think, in many ways is sort of the soccer of spiritual practices in that, you know, you need a pair of lungs eyes you can close and you can basically, you can do it, right? I mean, that's not to denigrate any form of meditation, like 
why is soccer so, you know, the world's most popular sport? Because you need a ball, you know, and you can make a couple of goals. You don't need any fancy equipment. Like, that's it. You can, if you have a ball, you can play soccer. If you got lungs, you know, you, you can, you can meditate. I think that's the reason why it's particularly, you know, accessible, but it's certainly not the only practice. Any spiritual practice that um, helps us live with greater presence, awareness, alignment, intention in the moment that we're in, right? To be aware of what's happening as it's happening from moment to moment. That's probably the most basic definition of spiritual practice I can think of. And Jewishly, if we want to translate then that into a Jewish idiom, there's the classic sort of tension between keva and kavana, between form and intention, right? And when we have lots of prescribed ritual, form, calendar observances, etc. On the one hand, that's a wonderful, wonderful thing. There's depth, there's richness, there's history, there's all sorts of stuff that comes with that. And on the other, the risk is always rote performance. And how do I actually show up in a way where I'm present in this, where I really feel like I'm doing this not just to check it off on a checklist, not because of whatever guilt I might be feeling or mindlessly, but how do I engage with it mindfully? How do I engage with it with a sense of presence and awareness? We have so many practices for that. Blessing practices, brachot, right? Prayer, tefillah, it totally, of course. There are more modern practices like, you know, Rabbi Nachman of Breslav, you know, the Breslavian hitbodedut, going out into the woods and speaking to God. But you can go back to the ancient rabbis, the Talmudic rabbis, uh, and they're already looking at this problem of they're talking about in their own time, 2000 years ago, the Hasidim Harishonim, the early, the old pious ones, the pious ones of old, they would wait an hour before they even started praying so that they would have appropriate intention and presence. This tension has always been built into Jewish life. And that means that also there have always been spiritual practices uh, that have been attempts to enliven our experience of Torah and this Jewish language and Jewish tradition that we have. But I think we still have lots of residual people who are performing Judaism, uh, performing a Judaism, that they, you know, they get something out of it, sure, but their motivations for it, they may often wonder, like, I don't know, why am I really doing this? And do I really feel like this is making me, helping me be a better person, be the person I want to be? Um what that means institutionally is uh, Jewish institutions, first and foremost, are not solely interested in Jewish continuity or Jewish survival, which for good reasons they were interested in for over the last 75 years, but that that's not their primary preoccupation. Their primary preoccupation, their primary mission is to help people live meaningful, good, rich lives. And right now in day schools, in supplementary schools, in camps, there's this oftentimes enormous missed opportunity, I think, where they might do prayer, tefillah, and they might do mindfulness meditation, let's say, and those are separate things. And there's a lot of interest in the mindfulness meditation and there's begrudging engagement with the prayer. And what would happen if you could marry those? What, what would happen if we could take the time that we already allot to these things that are supposed to be spiritual, but they're not doing what we want them to do. What if we could put those together and solve two problems at once? I also want to say I'm making reference mostly to contemplative forms of spiritual practice tend to be quieter. There's also ecstatic forms of spiritual practice. There's singing, there's dancing, there's lots of ways in which that same feeling of at-homeness can also be cultivated and happen. I think there's just much more of that that starts to permeate the rest of Jewish life. So I really want to talk about the axis of individual and society, you know, like I, we, and that's not going to be new to you. I'm sure that in your universe, this is another topic that comes up a lot because with the critiques that I have both engaged with and candidly had myself of sort of spiritual organizations, including ones that I love and am part of, I think that there mm -hmm. is a serious overemphasis on notions of self. 
And I don't mean that they are selfish. I just mean that truly, if you look at sort of the languaging that's used, there's a lot of talk of self-care. Yep. There's notions of self-actualization. Actualizing oneself is sort of the peak of human experience as opposed to something that is contributing to a broader collective. And I think that you started to actually hint at this with your distinction between contemplative and ecstatic. When I hear those two terms, I it's not that you can't do contemplative experiences with other people, and it's not that you can't do ecstatic experiences by yourself, but I think by and large, contemplative is kind of a code word for mostly an I, a, a one person doing something. And ecstatic tends to be stuff that groups are doing together. Mm. And so that starts to hint at it. But I, I guess I'd love to hear to somebody like me who looks around at some of the organizations that emphasize spirituality and think, you know, every time I'm in this group, I'm asked to go inward and think about my, my, my attributes, my, you know, mido is a word that comes, you know, my, my inner work, inner work. But I find that we often leave it there and there is a disconnect from what I take as the intention of that, which is to then be more in tune with the rest of the universe, like you talked about. Like, But we have to be as focused on that as we are on the part that is going inward. I, yeah. I, and what's funny is like one of my, you know, traditions that has influenced me that's not Jewish is the idea of anatman, which is no self. And a lot of people that participate in IJS programming and probably are part of other organizations you work with um, and that I work with, they probably are similarly shaped by this notion of no self, of mm. the idea we even have selves is to some extent maybe an illusion. And so how can we take some of the inward looking, my eye focus of spirituality as a term, I think that's how people tend to hear it, and link it to the we focus of maybe religion. I mean, you talked about there's spiritual but not religious. Sometimes what people mean by that is I have a personal thing that I do that connects me to something bigger, but I don't really like being part of something, quote, tribal, something that is a subgroup of society that isn't all of society. Yeah. So in terms of Anatman, if we were going to Judaicize that, um, we have the concept of bitul, uh, right? With, within the Hasidic tradition, which would be like self-nullification, right? Like, And we're holding these two contradictory realities. On the one hand, there's the reality of my life and my selfhood. And on the other hand, there's the reality of, and it's all divinity. The whole earth is full of God's glory, right? From uh, Isaiah. And, and that's our life, right? I mean, that 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 we live on these, you know, multiple registers of of existence. I would agree with you that ecstatic spirituality is very, very hard, if not impossible, to do on your own. To get there, to get there, to sing, to dance, to do anything like that, you know, it doesn't really work. I think the contemplative, though, actually does work even better in community. And I have two, I have two proofs for that. One is the experience on on, on a retreat, right, on like a meditation retreat being silent for a week with other people is qualitatively different than taking a personal silent retreat at home for a week, right? Like, so I, I think COVID reminded us of that. And I think COVID also pointed up something fascinating, which is that, you know, we we used to have a weekly meditation set at IJS before COVID. And if we got like 30 people to come on Zoom, we thought that was good. We started a daily set on March 12th, 2020. We had 41 people. A week later, we were at 300. And we've continued every day, Monday through Friday, 1230 Eastern, with this set. And we regularly, you know, every day we're getting 250, 300, 350 people. And then, you know, another couple hundred people watching it on YouTube later. And what that tells me is people want to get together at the same time, turn on their Zoom so they can close their eyes together. They could do this asynchronously just as well, right? They could take any app that's out there, mind, you know, calm, 10% happier, insight timer, right? We can, you know, I use them, they're great. But there's something about they want to be in community with each other. They want to know that this is happening at the same time and that I'm doing this with people in the same temporal zone. That begins to point us to, I think, the question that you're asking, which is like, What's the ethics that emerges from this kind of spirituality? Like, that's great if it's all, you know, self-care. Okay, it helps you to like manage the anxieties of life and all of that. That's great. You know, here I would point to, you know, something as mundane as, you know, just this morning I had occasion to, you know, some, I, I needed to give a piece of feedback to one of my colleagues. 
And the way that I did that was totally informed by my work, inner work on the midah, on the, 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 the character value of shmirat hadibur, of mindful speech. I, would, I hope I would be careful anyway. But I was conscious of, oh, I'm practicing Shmirat Hadibur right now in the way that I'm offering this feedback. And the way that that person then took it also was like, oh, wow, thanks for that feedback. Like, I need to do better on my midot of X, Y, or Z. And so we, and now this is at IJS, we have this language, but like it's a language that actually is part of our work culture and our values. I've thought about maybe we should be running workshops or or experiences for other boards for whom you know for our for the people on our board work serving on the board is a part of their spiritual practice like it is spiritual work it is totally informed by that and i think if more organizations had that same experience like the world would be a better place i'd like to think that there's more of an ethics that already is latent and even visible in this, there is no question that it can devolve into just self-care and to solipsism um, and to you know navel gazing if you're not careful. So maybe it's a way that they're like infusing that w- with more intention and awareness. It could be. So now I find myself whirling in the question that Dan asked earlier about like what how we think of spiritual practice and how we do so more expansively. And what's funny, like I, I have thought about that before, and I've tried to sort of push myself to think more expansively about it. And like my go-to for when people, if I'm at a conference or if I'm at something where we're asking like, what's your spiritual practice? I tend to start by saying, I give blood every 16 weeks. I, I give a double red blood donation every 16 weeks, which is the, that is the maximum I can do so in terms of care for myself, huh? self-care. Huh? <laughs> and in terms of like, I literally have to sign a form that says I have not given blood in the last 16 weeks. But once again, that's an example of something. It's it's not the level of like watching 30 Rock that we said before, but it's it's something people don't tend to jump to when they're asked what their spiritual practice is. I think yeah. when people are asked what their spiritual practice is, they're thinking about, you know, how they take a second to breathe, how they get out of the world as it is. Yeah. And, and it's not that, I, like, I don't want to straw man meditation. I, I do actually... Not every day, but I do have every here and there meditation practices. But I think that I'm curious, like, if you'd add more on what spiritual practices might be. And specifically, I want to sort of take it into your book that you wrote. And the reason I'm bringing it up in the context of spiritual practice is because your book, if somebody were to look at it really quickly and just page through and see what the table of contents look like, um, I think they'd open it up and say, oh, this is like a book that has a comment on every Torah portion. It's 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 somebody's thoughts on each of the 54 whatever uh, Torah portions. That's true and it's just a few pages for each one, but you do something that maybe others have done. I'm not aware of them. But you do something I found cool which is you pretty explicitly make the things you say, the words you write, launching points. They're not actually the the crux. The crux right. is that they lead for every single Torah portion to two things. One is, and this is why I'm asking the question, spiritual practices. How can I actually do a thing and not just think a thing mm-hmm. in response to these last few pages I read? And then the other one is you ask some questions. And from my perspective as a reader, it seemed like you want more that we really engage those questions than you do for us to remember every last word you said in the core part. So I guess I'd love to hear if that's like true, that that's what you meant, and just a little more about why those spiritual practices, why those questions. You definitely got the conceit of the book, and I am as much as I'm flattered if people read the essay, and they need, and they do need to read the essay, right? I mean, like they, it, because it it's a ramp, it, it's a way of helping people make their way into uh, to get ready for those questions and to get ready for that practice for a lot of people. The intellectual enterprise can serve as an on-ramp to the to the, the spiritual work that ultimately is most important to me. You know, I, I've been thinking about your question of this, the I and the we, right? The, that, that interpersonal question, you're really formulating Hillel's questions, right? Hillel's famous questions of, Am I, if I'm not for myself, who will be for me? When I'm only for myself, what am I? 
Like those two questions really are, let's fast forward 2000 years. And now it's, um, if I'm not doing the work for myself, how can I show up for other people? And if I'm only doing for my, the work for myself, that's not enough. And a lot of spiritual practices, you asked me to talk about more about what those are. So a lot of those spiritual practices, I'll say in a second what they are, but can be oriented outwards, can be oriented towards our interpersonal actions. So this week, what if you set an intention to just be more mindful in the way that I look at another, you know, other people, like five minutes a day, I'm just going to have that intention, the, the, the gaze that I bring. Uh, to my interpersonal actions, right? I want to inform that with um, a value of chesed, of of loving connection, uh, of compassion. One of my favorite practices, I think, that's t- that that I wrote about is for Shabbat Hagadol, for the Shabbat that comes before Passover. And my colleague, uh, Rabbi Miriam Klotz, uh, just offered me the most beautiful, simple thing that she has done for years, which is as she gets, her, as she's about to get her kitchen ready for Passover, which for many of us is like a hefty ordeal. We clean, we change, you know, dishes around. We do a lot of stuff to get ready for Pesach. What if you just took five minutes and sat in your kitchen and just paused for a moment to appreciate all the things that go on and go into the kitchen? the food that I prepare, but where does that food come from? And what are my ethical responsibilities? And what's my awareness about that food? And to just take a moment to actually sit with that and be aware and be aware of it and be aware of in my body, how all of that feels, how I'm carrying all of that. And then an intention for how am I going to clean my, my, my kitchen for Pesach? That to me is amazing, right? As somebody who I've grown up cleaning for Pesach my entire life, right? But I never did it with that kind of um, I'm pausing to be aware. And I don't think that's just about, you know, navel gazing, right? I think I think that really can extend us out into ethical dimensions, into more mindful living for the benefit of, as the Buddhists would say, not only for our own benefit, for the benefit of all beings. So my question, as I read the book, I was thinking, is this stuff really in the Torah? And I think to myself that the Torah, right, I've become like a biblical scholarship stan, you know, fanboy, right? I don't do it myself, but I read all the books. And the more I read, the more I kind of feel like oh, the Torah really is not very spiritual. It was created out of all these political alliances and political needs and, and all kinds of things of that nature. But I am totally on board for the project of putting the spirituality into it or or various other things into it or using it. And I don't, I, I'm just curious about your language here. Um, is it a mirror? Is it really that the Torah is just a way to talk about these ideas? You know, and I'm thinking about classicism in the same way, because one of the things that you do in this book is that for each of these Torah portions, you're bringing in a piece of text from the Hasidic world. And, you know, maybe this goes back to our question about the difference between the people who are all in on all of these practices, again, who stereotypically we may describe and envision in our minds in different ways in terms of the clothes they wear and the things they do, versus those of us who are trying to take certain practices out of there. And you could look at that and say, but that's not really the thing. The thing is a whole system. And yet, here you are taking the Hasidic ideas and also kind of bringing them in piecemeal into relationship with these Torah texts and then sort of into our world in a way that would be useful. I'm just wondering what your experience of doing that was. Did it make you feel that this stuff actually really was in the Torah? Like there was some kind of genius who implanted all of this stuff? Or did it give you the sense of actually the Torah is kind of this incredible thing that we can shape into different meanings? My mind goes to something that a teacher of mine, Baruch Feldstern, uh, many years ago, I remember him saying, Jews don't read the Bible, Jews read the Bible the way the rabbis read the Bible. <laughs> and and that's a pithy aphorism. But I think the truth that it's conveying is certainly along the lines, Dan, that you're saying that it's less about what the text is than about our relationship with the text. And, you know, the beauty of our tradition, one of the great beauties of our tradition is it's all about interpretation. Nobody prizes literal readings. Um, you know, we prize creative interpretations. And 
I've always felt like it's it's sort of a game of tetherball, right? It's like there's there's um if you think of the text as being the pole and the reader being the ball. If the ball is up against the pole, there's no game. And if you cut the if you if you cut the rope and you just you know untether the ball, there's also no game. The interesting you know point is where there's some tension in the line. I love um, tetherball. Oh. <laughs> you know that was like the everyday at fourth grade recess. Yeah, so. I'm not terribly interested in the literal or historic meaning of the text. I mean, like, that's good. But what particularly draws me is like, right, how can I, how might I interpret this in a way that has integrity, right? That, that is in relationship and, you know, honest relationship with the tradition doesn't completely rip it out of context. And that speaks within a zone of plausibility to me today, right? And, and, and a zone of proximal development that help that helps, you know, helps us stretch today. So I, you know, not only, first of all, of course, the Hasidic tradition is really helpful for that. Oftentimes, some of the most creative and informed interpretations um, and psychologically insightful, like they're already, they're dealing with a lot of contemporary questions about subjectivity and selfhood and community. And what I also think is really interesting is, um, you know, I made a very intentional effort in this book to bring other voices into dialogue with that. I was trying to very consciously not just have Western uh, writers uh, of a you know wh- whatever lineage, but like to really uh, have a diversity of uh, of writers. And so you wind up with some really interesting mashups of like you know Claudia Rankin talking with the Chernobyl Rebbe, um, you know, dialoguing in some way, or you know being attentive to just you know how can we bring a, a wider array of voices into this because I think that informs. To me, it stretches my understanding and vision. I also hope that it helps more readers to sort of see themselves reflected here as well, that like you don't have to be a Hasidic Jew. You know, frankly, I don't frankly care if you're Jewish. Uh, you know, like I think there's a lot of readers here who might be interested in this book um, because of the ways that it opens up questions of you know biblical interpretation or spiritual practice. I want to clarify something I said before and and get your thoughts on it. Um, I mentioned giving blood every 16 weeks is a spiritual practice. For me, how I define spiritual practice, the most important part of that sentence is every 16 weeks. It is not give blood. I, I believe strongly in giving blood. I One of my deepest desires in the world is that every person on the planet who is eligible give blood and that we eliminate rules that make certain people not eligible who should be eligible. But really, and when I talk about it as spiritual practice, it's only a practice because I do it on a rhythm that it recurs. Mm-hmm. Let's take my favorite spiritual practices, you know, giving blood, singing in community with others to go to a communal oriented one, personal prayer, go- going to IJS's meditation sit, all great things. If somebody does those once, or even a few times scattered sort of arrhythmically, like without any pattern, I'm not sure that I think it's a spiritual practice. And I and I want to be clear because I, I spend a lot of my life saying, you know, X, Y, or Z is Torah. X, Y, or Z is spiritual practice, or at least in potential could be Torah mm-hmm. or could be spiritual practice. What I mean by that is watching 30 Rock, to go to like a, a, a trivial sounding example, like watching 30 Rock regularly with a specific mindset and a specific set of goals can in potential be a spiritual practice. Watching it once isn't. And I, and I think it's important to say that because I don't want people to think that I'm just saying, oh, everything you already do, that's spiritual practice. Right. Boom. You didn't realize it. It's already... Spir- no, like you, you do in fact have to have A, some sense that you are consciously doing it, and be a rhythm where it recurs, I think. Mm-hmm. It, something can be spiritual and great, but it, it's not necessarily a spiritual practice. So that's my thought that is not a respectful interview question, because I'm basically curious, do you agree? My interview question is, in your book, you do something really interesting, which when you're telling those Hasidic, not stories, when, when you quote from Hasidic people and tie it to Torah portions, I notice, and it's not just the Hasidic folks, even other texts, I noticed you were quoting these medieval texts, you know, a thousand years old or 500 years old, and I would be reading them and all of a sudden it would say, and the Hasidic master, she says, blah, blah, blah. she was not a she in the original, um, and she's not a she in the Hebrew text that you are featuring there, but you are translating that 
in a in a gender expansive way. But what's equally interesting to me is you never told readers you did that. You mm-hmm. never had a section that was like, hey, everyone, I am going to be more expansive about gender than Maimonides was. And so Maimonides' words are going to actually sound like he's talking about women rabbis or women teachers. And, you know, here's your cue for that. No, you just did it. And I'm curious to hear. Uh, I, I, I like that. I like that you didn't explain it. But I'm curious to hear what your yeah. logic was underneath that. Great. First question, yes, I would agree. We might do ourselves a favor by not talking as much about spiritual practice and maybe talking more about spiritual exercise, right? Like I'm looking over and I see my Peloton over there, right? And it's like, yeah, okay, I'm a regular, like that is part of my exercise. That is my exercise regimen, right? I, I do, you know, at least three mornings a week. There's a pattern to it and there's a regularity to it. And it gives me lots of feedback to, you know, to let me know how I'm doing and how I'm progressing. And I, so we call that physical practice, right? Um, or training, and and that's what a lot of spiritual practices. You know, we, if we thought of those in this in a similar way, it's like great if you're just doing this, you know, uh, occasionally without any discipline to it. Of course, there's value to that, right? Like, of course, like that, that's wonderful that you do it. And in order for it to take root, in order for it to to you know to have the transformative impact that it can have just like with the exercise, like you're going to need to do that on a regular basis for that to, you know, to develop muscle, as it were. Uh, in terms of the gender question that you raised about the book, you know, it's interesting until you until you raise that question, I hadn't really thought about like, you know, do I need to make that transparent to the reader? I, I, I did write a note about like how I'm referring to Hasidic texts, you know, that, that you know, uh, at, at the it's the first thing in the book, I think, because the publisher actually said to me, Larry Udelson said, um, you probably need to explain to people when you refer to the Mehashiloach, right, as a person, even though it's the name of the book and the guy's name was, you know, Mordechai Yosef Liner, you need to like talk about that idiom. But um, by the I way, guess... I thought you wrote that note because you were hoping that we would start referring to you as the eternal question. Exactly. Right, right. Whoa. The Bali eternal question. Oh, Shkoyach. Um, but, <laughs> uh, and just to clarify one thing, Lex, I don't think, I, I, I wouldn't um, refer to the Hasidic Rebbe who wrote the thing that I, you know, that I'm quoting from as a she, like he, he is identifiably a he, but I think you're talking about like, either if I'm talking about God, or if I'm talking about a person, right, where I would normally maybe have used one if I wanted to be gender neutral. So instead, it's like, no, we can do she, he, they, you know, we'll use different pronouns. Part of that was just like, as a writer, I get tired of, you know, it it gets a little exhausting not using pronouns at all. But part of it is also, I think, transposing that into a contemporary idiom, I feel like is, I think is a perfectly reasonable move. I want people to feel welcome in this conversation. And if I'm, if I'm strictly translating the word who in Hebrew as he, every single time that it occurs, there is a huge proportion of the population that's going to, you know, feel alienated from that. So I'm glad you appreciated it. Um, I'm not even sure I was all that aware of um, doing it while I was doing it. I don't hate the idea of referring to you as eternal questions. Um, but anyway, my closing question is basically, um, and my, my normal final question is, what do you imagine people do with the book that is read. But you've made that easy because literally every Torah portion, you conclude it with like, here's some things that people could actually tangibly do with the book. So you've really discourteously rid me of my go-to final question. But (laughs) what I would ask instead is, I guess, the inverse. Like, you didn't focus so much on creating an overarching thesis statement of a book. And part of that's the nature of writing, you know, 50 some separate essays. But to the extent you have a thesis statement or an overarching set of ideas, what might they be? I think fundamentally, I don't want us to be satisfied with saying that something was interesting anymore. Interesting often is a cop out. I mean, some, when Dan says it's interesting, he really means it. I know that. Um, but <laughs> but I think a lot of times it's like interesting is like, okay. And like, so what do I do with that? And I think that the times are such that we need our experience of Torah to be transformative 
it needs to do something. It needs to help us activate something in ourselves. And so expecting of our encounter with Torah, that it lead us to something deeper, some deeper awareness, some deeper practice, some deeper engagement with the world. You know, my, my overarching thesis of American Jewish life is that I think one of the great unreflected upon realities of American Jewish life is the huge importance, the central importance of higher education. But I think that we haven't reflected upon the ways in which that has contributed to the over-intellectualization of American Jewish life, has contributed to taking on the uh, in sociology, you'd call it the habitus, the, you know, what you were talking about, Lex, the, the, the look and feel and language and voting patterns and economic status of college graduates and the expectations that come with that. A lot of what we're doing is, is a response to that is like all of that movement towards the mind, towards uh, the intellect, towards making money and forms of commodification and, you know, and business. All of that uh, that has come with American Jews' experience in higher education, there's part of us that's always been looking for some deeper form of engagement, right? That on the one hand can still be intellectually credible, and on the other hand can open up the rest of our bodies, our hearts, our emotions. And that's what I'm trying to do with this book. Um, and I think it's really what I'm trying to do more broadly with my work. Thank you so much, Josh Fagelson, for joining us. It's been a fantastic conversation. Thank you. This has been great. And thanks so much to all of you out there for listening as well. We hope you've enjoyed this conversation and we hope that you'll tune in again in the future, especially to all of the remaining episodes in our spirituality unit. This was an awesome kickoff to it, but there's so much more to go. So tune in. This unit will be straddling the new year that, of course, is coming very, very soon. And uh, we look forward to the next couple months. We're really going to be deep diving this set of questions around what spirituality is and why it matters for the Jewish present and future. So we hope that you will stick around for those episodes. But as we close this one out, we want to do so in the same way that we always do, by encouraging you to be in touch with us. And there are a wide variety of ways for you to do that. First, you can head to our Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram pages. All of those are at Judaism Unbound. Second, you can head to our website, JudaismUnbound.com. And third, you can always email us at dan at judaismunbound.com or lex at judaismunbound.com. The last request we like to make is that we deeply appreciate any amount of financial donation that you're able to send our way, especially, 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 especially this time of year. As we close from 2022 and enter 2023, we are so grateful for any amount of financial contribution you can send our way. Monthly recurring donations are super awesome, but so are one-time gifts. Any of those you can do at judaismunbound.com donate. So thank you so much for listening. Have an amazing remainder of Hanukkah. Have an amazing Christmas if you're celebrating. Have an amazing New Year. And with that, this has been Judaism Unbound. <laughs>